all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Hey. <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. You want to try it again? No, go for it. <laughs> Follow us Insta, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitch at All Bad Things Pod. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail gmail.com. Join our discussion group, Facebook discussion group, and our Discord. You could have maybe done better than I could in this one. Possibly. Do all of those things. Yes. Yeah. Just to clarify, it's allbadthingspod at gmail.com, not at discussion group, whatever I was saying. That might be somebody's email address. At discussion group. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Probably somewhere out there there's somebody with that, and they haven't checked it in five years. Right. And all of a sudden they get a flood of, like, what? (laughs) Ah, what are we drinking tonight? I am drinking a vitamin water. A vitamin water? Yeah. Uh, acai blueberry? I guess that's how you pronounce it. I've never known how to pronounce that. Blueberry acai. pomegranate. Yeah. Acai? Acai. A chai is, that's how I always pronounce it in my head. Yeah, I, I could see that. I think it's acai, but I could be wrong. I'm drinking a black raspberry sparkling ice. Um, I'm sure the audience is thrilled to mm-hmm. know that. <laughs> Indeed. Well, maybe we have vitamin water and sparkling ice connoisseurs out there. We might. Listening, yes. Um, I still feel mildly catatonic having just watched... How many hours did we watch A Better Call Saul? About six. Wow. I think we watched six episodes. I think so. I think you're right. Wow. Yeah. Just binged through the end the of end. it. Because <laughs> we only thought there was going to be three more episodes and there turned out to be six more. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we got back into it, though. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Excellent show. It was really good. I mean... I- just as good as Breaking Bad, I think. I still think Breaking Bad's got the upper hand a little bit. Mm. But I'm kind of curious to watch Breaking Bad now because... I want to watch Breaking Bad again, too. Because I've forgotten half of it. Clearly, I had to keep asking yeah, you. Yeah, you didn't remember any of it. <laughs> it was over a decade ago that I saw any of it. That's true. Well, the series finale was, was like... 2013? Yeah, it was 10 years ago. So. Yeah. Yep. Yes. <sighs> so... Are you ready to talk about British politics again? (laughs) Sure. As always. As always, yes. So we are continuing our London Underground series with part two, the Moorgate Tube Crash. Okay. I just realized I misspelled it on here. (laughs) Anyway. So to sort of reintroduce the general topic, the subway system of London, the tube, is the longest metro system, system in Europe. It currently hosts an estimated 1.35 billion passengers every year and generates annual revenue of over 2.5 billion pounds. While accidents, especially deadly ones, are extremely rare given the traffic volume the tube sees, we are going to eventually cover a trio of notable non-criminal disasters. The 1953 Stratford tube crash, which was last week. Mm -hmm. The 1975 Moorgate tube crash, which is today. And the 1987 King's Cross fire. And now we are into the second. On February 28th, 1975, 43 people died and 74 more were injured when a tube train crashed into the wall at the terminus of the tunnel at Moorgate Station. Was it a dozen people that died in last week's episode? Yes. Okay. So this is way worse. That was at the time the deadliest tube accident, mm-hmm. and it that was fifty three. So it took about twenty two years, and then not a record you want to break. No, no, it's definitely not. Yeah, because um, in the last one, a, a train ran into right. rear-ended a train that was already stopped. Right. Due to driver error, mm-hmm. the although it was. Um, unclear because the driver potentially had a head injury it was unclear yeah. what he really saw that he was saying or, or what all in all just unfortunate yes just a very bad situation uh so the source and this it's not going to get better this time around mm. um the sources primary sources for this episode were fascinating horror london Fa- that's horror horror <laughs> it almost sounded like i said fascinating horror fascinating horror <laughs> 
<laughs> but that's slut shaming, and I would never do that. So, well, um, call her fascinating first. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. London Fire, Gresham College, My London, Rail Magazine, and Wikipedia. All right, so a shout out to our listener Declan, who suggested yes. this specific. Okay, topic. yeah. So, when last we met, we deeply discussed <laughs> British politics, economics, and Parliament before ending at 1953, at which point we discussed the Stratford tube crash. We now resume our regularly scheduled politi- British political deep dive because I do have to retread a little bit of ground here. Okay. Um, so as we mentioned last time, a whole bunch of industry, including transportation, had been nationalized in Great Britain after World War II. That was rolled back slightly when the conservatives came back into power. Um what I realize now that I'm continuing research is that I entirely failed to mention in the last episode, because we ended in 1953, that Churchill's the PM again. He oh, weaseled his way. Oh, that's right. That's right. He did become Yes, yeah. back into the premiership in 1951. So, see, um... See what alcoholics can accomplish? <laughs> they, they can become prime minister twice. I guess technically he was indeed a highly functioning oh, he, alcoholic. Well, I know the, he was an alcoholic. The functioning part that depends on who you ask, apparently. I guess so, but uh, I guess so. yeah, I've read plenty of uh, stories when uh, uh, World War II was coming to an end and negotiations were coming down, and he's not—he's not seen in the best light. We'll put it that way. Yeah. By some people. I mean, if ever there was a time to be driven to alcoholism, it would be during It would be. It would be after uh, 100 million people died. Right? Yeah. So, I mentioned last time the 1950 election had seen the Labor Party stay in power, but with a much smaller majority and much more strides made by the Conservative Party. Um, And trying to be leader of a parliament that was increasingly hostile was incredibly difficult for then-Prime Minister Clement Attlee, as you can imagine. You don't really have to imagine. No. Just our uh, House of Representatives flipped recently mm-hmm. to be majority Republican, right? Narrow majority? Barely, yeah. By Na- like very four narrow. four seats, I believe. Majority Republican, four but with five. a Democratic... Um, Senate. Slightly Democratic Senate mm-hmm. and a Democratic president. So a split Congress or a split Parliament or whatever... It's, it's, or just very close, is very difficult to deal with. Um, In 1950, a little thing called the Korean War began, (laughs) which included British involvement starting that August. Were they involved in that? Yeah. I I honestly did not know that. They sure were. It was their first wartime involvement since World War II. It didn't take long. I was going to say, it was their first wartime involvement since last week. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, they took a whole five years off. (laughs) Yeah, so did we. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And there were, around this time too, there were also significant concerns regarding the newly formed National Health Service, or NHS. So as you can imagine, starting up a full-scale social medical provision service is incredibly expensive. Oh, sure. And part of this was anticipated because the idea was, there's probably a whole bunch of people who haven't gotten medical care because they can't afford it. So when we start opening it to everybody... There's going to be a flood of people catching up, right? Hmm? And that's going to put a big strain economically on the system. Like, that was that was yeah. anticipated. Initially, it will. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that and that's what that's, happened, I mean, and then it started stabilizing after that. Out of all the things I've seen off of, because both of us have read and tried to implement, like, how could we do it here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's going to be extreme costs in the beginning. Absolutely. That's when it's going to be at its highest. But it does. But after, but after a generation or two, because you've had not even just a few years. Great Britain, it started stabilizing just a few years down the road. No, no, no. What I'm saying, you're going to start to see serious declines in that amount of money in a couple of generations because people will be able to get the care that well, they need sure, as you go along. Sure, you'll be eliminating people that because mm-hmm. as as most uh, doctors will put it, like we mm-hmm. don't have healthcare in America, we have sick care. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, so. and preventative is is everything, right? Big time. Like it's a huge percentage of yeah. keeping a, a well. In fact, there's um. Oh my God, where did I see it? I saw a diagram and take for this what you will, because obviously I can't cite my source or anything, but I did see a diagram that was breaking down. I think it was on an intuitive. So again, take from this what you will. It was an intuitive eating influencer on TikTok. She was talking about, she was presenting data on how much 
um, eating is a determinant of health. Food sure. and nutrition as a determinant of health. It is one, but vastly outweighed by, like, I think the number one thing was medical care. Which well, makes perfect sense, the you thing, know? The things I've seen, and this is on cancer alone, mm. if you can pre-screen and catch sure. cancer before either number one before it spreads or before it becomes what right. it becomes uh-huh cancer is one of the biggest uh killers well no causes it, it, of death well also it has one costs. of the biggest costs that's true mm-hmm. so if you eliminate mm-hmm. or mitigate catch it as early as possible minimum treatment required yes. that sort of thing absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely um so and, and i've, so I've right. read all sorts of things where at certain ages, you should be you should be pre-screening for skin yes. cancer, things yes. like that. Mm-hmm. Well, know. it's famously, you know, mammograms for women, mm-hmm. prostate exams for men, that sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's never going to happen, so not over oh, here. Oh, universal healthcare. <laughs> yeah. Well, not happening. A girl can dream. It's just a pipe dream. Um, but like a good example of preventative care helping de- helping a generation. Fluorine, fluorided water, fluorinated, fluorinated, is that a word? Putting fluoride in the city's water supplies mm-hmm. as they rolled out in like the, I don't even know what era, but I grew up in an era where we had fluoride in the water, right? Mm-hmm. But my parents didn't. And their generation's teeth are worse off for it. And we're better off for it. So it goes to show just like systemic changes can change what? Outcomes. Yes, it can change health outcomes. Mm-hmm. And like you said, in a generation too, yeah. Um, so all of these issues, the Korean War the, 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 and Britain's um, involvement in the Korean War, plus the cost of this new system, it was causing more and more tension between Attlee, who is a labor prime minister, and an increasingly conservative parliament. So Attlee's administration called for what they call a snap election, or an election sure. that's just called for before it's due, right? right? They have a general election every five years. Well, they just had one in 1950, so why are they having one again as the snap election? So it was only about a year and a half after the previous election, and the October 1951 election saw the Conservative Party gain a majority, resulting in the reinstallation of wartime PM Winston Churchill. This saw the rollback of some of the industrial nationalizations. It, they privatized the steel industry again. Sure. Uh, there was also some major and controversial changes to the NHS. Apparently, at least I was reading, apparently this is still a controversy to this day or a controversy. Controversy. Um, they introduced charges for prescriptions. Okay. As well as some medical, or sorry, some dental and vision services like eyeglasses and false teeth. Okay. So they started charging for certain things. And also during this time to co- correct a bunch of wild speculating and asking Siri that we did last week, King George VI died in February of 1952. Elizabeth II was coronated the following June, as we mentioned, which would have been like during the inquiry into the Stratford disaster, mm. right? All right, now we're <laughs> resuming our normal program. And she stayed queen until last year. Mm-hmm. She's a... It's amazing. Like, it really is. And now her inbred son is the king. So. There you go. God save the king. Uh, in this term of government, Winston Churchill decided that it was a good time to realign Great Britain with the United States in what they called a special relationship. And aligning yourself with the United States may not always be the wisest thing to do, in my opinion. Well, it depends but, on what that alignment is. Exactly. You know. Uh-huh. An alignment so, to go to war again. Eh. Well, remember we t- discussed last time how part of the post-war consensus was pulling back on the colonialism part? Yes. Well, so if you're re-teaming up with an old friend who has happens to be really strong on the colonizing front, that may not help you meet that goal. <laughs> um, well, we're... Well, that's not necessarily happening at this point anymore. Mm. Um, mm. Just let me finish. What we're about to get into is we must defeat communism everywhere. Well, yes. So but the, also, this is the proxy era, right? Oh, of Everything, course. yes. And yeah. yes, of course, it has to do with the Cold War. But we haven't stopped that even since the Cold War. Everything's no. proxy powers and oil and yeah, shit. that's true. And us poking our little fingers where it doesn't belong. Well, wherever we can. 
Yes. Which is where they don't belong. So, um, there was a dispute over oil. No. Isn't there always? Isn't there always? You're kidding me, right? With Iran. Uh, then there was Them? the... Korea- <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Then there was the Korean War involvement. Uh, there, they had more than a, a wee problem with colonization in Kenya and were experiencing a rebellion in British Malaya because they were still a fucking empire. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, when... Pres- I want to say this is around the time they gave up control of India, too. The, I think that was... I think that was a little earlier. I believe that was a bit okay. earlier, but I don't... I, I actually don't know for sure. When President Harry Truman was replaced by Dwight Eisenhower, Mm -hmm. Churchill wasn't so sure what to make of the guy. Uh, Churchill had tried to hold a summit meeting with the Soviets along with the states because Stalin died. So it's like, hey, maybe we can get in here. I think he was succeeded by Khrushchev, I think. Certainly not Gorbachev by that point. No, I'm pretty sure it was Nikita Khrushchev came came after Stalin. Um... But I, Eisenhower refused. He wouldn't go along because he was no, afraid... No, because we're into our full-on... Well, and he was yeah. afraid the USSR would use the summit as, like, propaganda. Communism propaganda. That's, yeah, apparently... That's, that's not something we do. Well... <laughs> Church... Proper what? Now, Churchill... Remember, he had that, uh... That sick burn of Attlee calling him a sheep in sheep's clothing? hmm Well, he called Eisenhower, quote, both weak and stupid, end quote. The you man know, didn't uh, his words. Well, I mean, it's also another thing to call a general that. A world decorated <laughs> World War II I mean, general. It's not like he was some politician that like climbed up yeah, the ranks. Yeah, it is. It you is know, bad. he saw some shit. Mm-hmm. He thought Eisenhower didn't take the bomb seriously enough, interestingly. and In a good or a bad way. No, like, he, he's not taking enough care about the atom bomb oh, okay. and diffusing okay. the situation. Gotcha. Um, and he didn't, and this was a good call, he didn't trust then-Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. Yeah. <laughs> that was That's a good always, call. Yeah. That was a good call, Winnie boy. Yeah. <laughs> On top of... I don't, I don't trust flying into that airport. Right? <laughs> <laughs> On top of all this instability, by 1955, fucking Churchill is 80. He's 80 years old. Pickled liver. And 80 when you're in 1955, yes. that's like, you gotta multiply, you gotta at least multiply that by two. He's and like, a he's like 160. And drinker? This guy's yeah. not a healthy 80 either. Yeah. So like, your dad he, is a healthy 80 plus year old, right? Pretty much. I mean, about as, This guy was no, not a healthy 80, he's not. 80 year old. You're just, ho- at that point, you're just like, oh, he's still around. Like, mm-hmm. it kind of doesn't matter if you're healthy or not right? at 80 in 1955. But he did do something admirable that I really wish more people would do. He fucking retired. He stepped down yeah, voluntarily. Yeah, yeah, we use plenty of that over here. Oh my god, yes, yes, like all please. of it. Yes, like all of them. Like fucking, if Feinstein doesn't fucking die already, she's not gonna die. God, pull the fucking plug. Yeah. It's too late. She's out of the hospital. So. Oh. God. <laughs> Missed the chance again. <laughs> Missed the, miss the chance on that. The guy that broke into Nancy's Pelosi house. Nancy <laughs> Pelosi was gone. <laughs> Uh, well, you know what we need? We need now for, we need to champion for, she's in California. We need to champion for death with dignity for Feinstein, but death for our dignity. Yes. <laughs> um, at least we got Pat Robertson. Yeah. Bye, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Sorry to see you go. We hope the, the heck you'll never come back. The Kissinger's still alive, so it yeah, doesn't, so, doesn't matter. And so is Bill Gothard, who, you know what? Fuck that man, because I just learned about him. Fuck that man. He can go die, too. What are we talking about? A Bill Gothard. Oh. No, I was <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll talk about Bill Gothard another time. Anyway, those are some of the people we wish dead. <laughs> uh, so taking over for Churchill in April 1955 was... Now, here's... It's not going to be as, as good as the Lord Chatter... Or what was his name? Whose name? The... The funny British title we had years ago. Oh, William oh, Cavendish. Well, William Cavendish. <laughs> That's it. It's, it's not going to be as fun as it, but it's still it's still a fun title. So this is the next PM. The Right Honourable, the Earl of Avon, Robert Anthony Eden. Yeah, that's not nearly it's not as, as fun good. Of a name. No, Cavendish no. was a good name. Yeah. Um, 
even after the election the next month. So, <laughs> so basically, Churchill stepped down, this guy stepped in, and then there was an election the next month. But he stayed in power. Mm. The conservatives stayed in power. He stayed in power. He enjoyed a very brief period of popularity because he was handsome and he had developed a good reputation as a diplomat during World War II. Doesn't hurt. But unfortunately for the Earl of Avon, Robert Anthony Eden, uh, or Anthony Eden, I think he's known as, something happened and it was a little thing called the Suez Crisis. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you know what? I had to look it up. Do you know what the Suez Crisis was? Uh, I have an idea, but go ahead. Okay. The long and short, here's my three-word summary. Colonizers be colonizing. Yeah, okay. Long and short, the Suez Canal. Right. It's a super important waterway in Egypt, close to the Gaza Strip. Um, it was built in the 1850s. It joins the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. Super important for shipping because otherwise you literally have, have to, to sail all, all the way around, around Africa. Yeah. Which is a very, a long, very long, long ride. ride. Exactly. Um, and the chances that you'll get uh, taken over by pirates is <laughs> well, it's, it's very certainly good. possible. Yes. yes, the canal was originally jointly owned by France and Egypt, and then by France and the United Kingdom. The president of Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser, nationalized the canal. Yeah, can't have that. And of course, France and UK didn't like that at all because they claimed ownership because it's of cutting it, them out, right? Yeah. yeah. Because somehow owning another country's waterway is a thing. That's a right. Again, colonizers be colonizing. Yeah. If you're, yeah, if you're a head of state, like, <laughs> but no, that's ours. Even though it's yours, we claimed it. Mm-hmm. Well, Israel took this opportunity to align with France and the United Kingdom to fuck over Egypt. Um, and this was uh, in 1956. They all started launching airstrikes on Egypt. This drew in, of course, the U.S. and the USSR, who were like, well, we'll turn this into another proxy war. The U.S. aligns with France and Britain. The USSR is going to go to whoever the other guy is, right? Which is Egypt in this instance. Um, and so basically the U.S. and the USSR just turned it into something all about themselves. And nobody even thought of fucking Egypt. It's their damn canal. You know? Well, I mean, the, the TV was still a new thing in the 50s, so people didn't probably didn't even know what an Egypt was. Yeah. Again, <laughs> this is another... Um, yeah, people still thought Africa was a country. People still do. Um, but this is mentioned in We Didn't Start the Fire. Yet another... Yet another... Uh, oh. ...thing that happened. Historical happening. Trouble in the Suez. Okay. So, yeah. Um... Uh, Princess Grace, Peyton Place, trouble in the Suez. We just don't know. Um, it, it, the UN had to step in in the end, and Egypt did maintain control over the canal. But the whole incident basically completely destabilized the Middle East, and made Further, it furthered it along. Continued yeah. to destabilize it, yeah. and continue, it's never exactly been stable over well, there. And contributed contributed to it being a pawn for future problems between the United States oh, and the Soviet Union. That exists to today. Yes. Yeah. It does. Probably will always exist. I don't. That's yeah, never going knows. away. And then it has its own problems, right? Like the Middle East itself. People in the Middle East have problems with each other, oh, and then yeah. everybody else is fucking with them. Yeah. And the U.S. was like, you know what? Let's put a whole nation of Jews right above it. It'll be okay. Everything will be fine. Yeah. They, they won't shoot rockets at each other or anything. So all of this spelled a lot of trouble for Anthony Eden, the great diplomat. Yeah, well, that's the other thing we have to remember, too. Um, we're unaffected by... What's the right word? I guess that we're unaffected by the outcomes on like an almost personal or physical basis in the United States because we're so we're, we're removed from that. But I mean, if anybody remembers, this is going off topic because we never do that. <laughs> um, at the start of the latest Iraq war, like that was a like, what is going to happen to all these refugees? That was mm -hmm. a question being put up by the UK, who mm -hmm. was getting involved by France, because right. they're like the Middle East is just like right next door. Mm -hmm. We know they're all going to come here. You know, so it this continues to be yes, an issue. It, yes, it, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, 
Yeah, it's a lot farther to go to immigrate like, to the U.S. than it is to like, Europe. We we era. think it's like we think we're being invaded by Mexicans. Like it's it's like it's not right? even not even close to what the European nations, well, and the Middle Eastern nations have to deal with. Well, and those aren't invasions; those are literal humanitarian refugees that we. Oh no! Be helping. I'm, anyway, I'm so when I said yeah. that, but uh, but we think that that's like a serious problem, right? But it's you know, it's, yeah, yeah. So everything is fucked. Yeah, basically, that's just a. <laughs> yeah. That was the other title for the show where we're going. With. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, PM Eden resigned in early 1957. Jeez, so it didn't last very long at no. all. On the auspices of bad health, but there's also a decent chance that he just hadn't been completely honest with Parliament about how much the UK was colluding with France and Israel. So that could have been a thing. Okay. The Conservative Party remained in power with Eden's successor, Harold Macmillan. I think they called... I th- oh, what was his nickname? It was something great like Supermac. <laughs> Not McLovin. <laughs> in the meantime, the British Transport Commission, which we discussed last week, and as a reminder, was the nationalization of Great Britain's railways, canals, and road freight transportation was not doing well economically at all in the 50s. Um, so under Macmillan's ministry, the Transport Act of 1962 completely abolished the BTC. Okay. In its place, it formed five separate governing bodies. The British Railway Boards, Railways Board for Railways, British Transport Docks Board, <laughs> just rolls off the tongue, for Inland Waterways, the London Transport Board, for buses and the underground, and the transport holding company for basically, like, everything else that they held. Now, as, or under the London Transport Board, in 1963, the Victorian line of the tube, which I had mentioned in the last episode, began construction as planned in 1963, opening in 1969 with none other than Queen Lizzie II herself present. And it was at this point that the famous... Mind the Gap recorded announcements began. So, do, uh, are you familiar with Mind the Gap? So, um, yeah, I haven't I haven't been to the London Ground Underground yet, unfortunately, but I have seen like in media what Mind the Gap is. So it's basically just means watch your step. It's a warning for travelers that there's you know a little gap in between the train and the oh, platform. Oh, okay, sure. So Mind the Gap is like just don't careful you don't get trip over the gap or get your foot stuck in or, or something like that. So under the new British Railways Board, railways in Britain were seeing some major changes um, under the new chair, Richard Beeching. The so-called Beeching Cuts or Beeching Acts resulted in the closure of 55% of British rail stations, 30% of train route miles, and the loss of 67,000 jobs. Wow. Meanwhile, while this was all happening, there were some major shifts in British politics. So in 1964, the Labour Party ran a successful election campaign, taking over the majority from 64 to 70. And also during this time, unlike the British rail system, the London Underground was mostly saved from any major attempts of cutting service, probably because as the 60s were on into the 70s, the tube was becoming more and more crucial to stem the growing traffic problem in London, right? It's just... It's a busy, huge metropolitan city. Oh, and, one of the biggest in the world. And experiencing yeah. the baby boom. Mm-hmm. And it, so the tube and public transport in, in general was really helping with some of that congestion issue on the actual roads. In 1969, Parliament abolished the London Transport Board and replaced it on January 1st, 1970 with the London Transport Executive which itself was under the Greater London Council. So under the Transport Executive, the council worked to increase the use of public transportation in London, especially in the outskirts, and they set fares to encourage the use of the tube and local buses, especially during, like, low-traffic times. Also in in 1970, the government flipped again, and returning to a conservative majority led by Prime Minister Sir Edward Heath. This early 1970s period in Britain was marked by some of the worst of the troubles in Northern Ireland, including the infamous Sunday Bloody Sunday 
that you two wrote hmm. a song about that they wrote six other songs that sound identical to them. Sure. Uh, with or without you, I pause it. Well, you've heard my... I have. My, I, probably everybody has at this point. But, yes. As bullshit as Bono is, the troubles were no bullshit. It actually... Well, it was some bullshit that it happened, but it was mm-hmm. horrible. Um, additionally, Great Britain was dealing with other economic issues common to the West at the time, like high inflation and an energy crisis. And it was at this time that Britain joined the European Communities, which was the precursor of the European Union. There was like a little wobble of maybe staying in the European Communities on this during the premiership of Heath's successor, Harold Wilson. But in the end, Britain remained. Until, of course, the famous Brexit of much more recent years. Mm -hmm. As the mid-70s wore on, Great Britain remained in economic crisis with high unemployment, increasing national debt, and inflation hitting an astronomical 24% in 1975. The U.S. was going through very similar issues at the time. Culturally, it grew the punk and new wave music scene, and you can see having some of the context of what conditions were like in Great Britain at the time, how this disaffected attitude grew so easily given the environment. Heavy metal was coming into the prominence at this time as well. Is that, uh, I mean, I know, uh, well, Sabbath. Sabbath is around, mm-hmm. Judas Priest is coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh uh, my God, what's the name of that? Anyway, but yes, heavy metal is starting to take a foothold as well. Is Motorhead American or British? Uh, geez, I don't know. He's a, he's a Brit. Lemmy is a Brit. Lemmy's British? Yes. Okay. The rest of the band, I'm, I'm pretty, yeah, he's a Brit. Okay. <laughs> he's a Brit. Yes, a Brit. He's a British person. A, a, British, a British person. British individual. All right. So it is in this socio-political economic environment that our next disaster takes place in the London Underground. The Moorgate Tube Crash. So up until this point... A total of only 14 people had died in disasters in the tube. And we're talking um, peacetime, not um, not when it, they were being used as like air raid shelters, right? Between 1938 and 1975. And of course, 12 of these people were the ones who died in that one single incident of the Stratford tube crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people had also um, completed suicide. By using the underground. But again, that would be more deliberate versus disasters or accidents. This disaster would eclipse that number by a long shot. So the Moorgate tube station is part of the Northern City Line, or NCL. And the NCL's origins go pretty far back, starting as part of the Great Northern Railway's underground tunnel system in London in 1904. The NCL was known as the Big Tube back in the day because both the tunnels and the cars used on it were larger than those used in the rest of the underground. It expanded throughout the years, um, and by 1975, the NCL was running from Drayton Park south to Moorgate, which was an interchange to other underground lines in central London. Well, and, and still is. Moorgate Station is still around. Moorgate Station itself is even older than NCL, having been opened in 1865 as Moorgate Street by the Metropolitan Railway. Interestingly, this crash was not the first time disaster had struck the station. Of course, it was the deadliest, but in 1905, a train derailed at Moorgate and injured two people. Because Moorgate Station served as the terminus of the NCL, that line's platform, which is Platform 9 ended there right this was the the last stop on this line and then it just headed back the other way so just slightly down from the platform itself so that you've got the platform you know and and then uh, in a station that continues right you've got the tunnel continuing past that well it continued slightly but then ended in a concrete wall and the reason they had it extend slightly past the platform was just in case a train slightly overshot right yeah uh, you can't just literally have a concrete wall right there. It was it was it was a little bit uh, down, just a little ways. Um, in 1975, so that same year of the disaster, they also had added a bunch of sand in this part of the terminus mm-hmm. to slow down any trains that might be overshooting the platform. 
They also had a red indicator light, like, hey, look, don't go here, as well as like a physical barrier, a mechanical barrier. And all of these were really just mostly extra safety measures because the rules were that the maximum speed of a tube car coming into the station was only going to be 24 kilometers per hour or 15 miles per hour. So there really wasn't much of a chance that like there'd be a runaway car careening into a wall, right? Well. well. <laughs> so at 6.40 a.m. on Friday, February 28th, 1975, NCL service began for morning commuters commuters on train 272. The train was six cars long, with the bulk of passengers sitting in the first two cars due to how the train was approaching the stations, right? The train was driven by Leslie Newson, a 56-year-old man who had been working as a tube driver for six years and who had been driving the NCL route for three months. The train's guard was late to work, so an off-duty driver took his place until a little before 7, 6.53 a.m. when the guard got there, and he was 18-year-old Bob Harris. And he had been working, like, since the previous year as a guard mm-hmm. on the train. So train 272 made its several trips back and forth along NCL according to schedule. At 8.38 a.m., the train left Drayton Park, at the north with around 300 passengers heading south towards Moorgate. Its last stop before Moorgate was Old Street, and it took just under a minute to approach Moorgate from Old Street. As 272 headed south from Old Street to Moorgate, now I'm calling him Richard Harris. I hate it when I just change people's names midstream. His name is Bob Harris, Robert Harris, I think. Okay, Bob Harris, um left the guard's control panel at the front of the rear car. He was in the last car. He was bored, and he wanted to, like, go look for a newspaper or something to read. Apparently, he ended up, like, just looking at ads at the back of the car. So poor kid must have really been bored if he was willing to read ads. Well, in fairness, nobody had a smartphone back then. (laughs) That's very true. At 8.46 a.m., Train 272 approached Platform 9 and kept going. Mm. Traveling at an estimated 48 to 68 kilometers per hour, which is 30 to 45, sorry, 30 to 40 miles per hour. That's enough force. Yep. Train 272 ran through the sand and the barrier and crashed straight into the concrete wall at the end of the line. Mm Mm-hmm. The impact, as you can imagine, was devastating. Uh, This is really gruesome. It'll be a quick fact, but it's really gruesome. The first 15 seats of the first car were crushed into just two feet. Yeah. Or less than a meter. Yeah. The second car telescoped, which we talked about last time, Mm -hmm. under the first car, and then the third car ran over that car. So the second car was under both. Mm Mm-hmm. One survivor, Javier Gonzalez, gave a quote to the BBC that was reprinted in many stories. Quote, just above my newspaper, I saw a lady sitting opposite me, and then the lights went out. I have the image of her face to this day. She died. Hmm. As darkness came, there was a very loud noise of the crash, metal, and glass breaking. No screams, all in the fraction of the second one takes to breathe in. It was all over in no time. Sure. End quote. Which I guess ultimately is like the best thing thing for anybody who was far up enough front to have just not survived, Mm. right? There was a delay in emergency services being called. The first, so this, the crash happened. Oh, wait, no, this isn't a delay. Like me, man, me. Okay. (laughs) The crash happened at 846. The first call was received at 848. So it was pretty quick that emergency services were called. Um, the station had gone basically completely dark. It was very dimly lit. Um, the first ambulance arrived at 8.45 a.m. Firefighters came soon after. Rescuers were not initially told the scope of the disaster, which makes sense if you're just getting the initial call, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously just many, many reinforcements had to be called in. One firefighter on the scene, Steve Gleason, said, quote, We quickly began to get an idea of the size of the incident, but we didn't really know what to expect until we got to the platform. 
Once there, we found a carriage half at the platform and half into the tunnel, but on a slant up to the ceiling. Mm. Firefighters had to squeeze their way, like between the tiny gap between the train wreckage and the tunnel wall to try and get towards the front. They had to cut holes through cars to go through cars. Um, They climbed up on the roofs to get down in. They did whatever they could to try and reach however many people they could. And once you get to that wreckage, it's unstable as well. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Oh, yes, I'm sure they had to that's, deal with that's a all whole, of that. That's a whole other challenge. Just getting to it is one challenge. Then dealing with it once you get inside it, that's a whole other... Mm-hmm. Wow. No, thank you. Uh, one doctor on the scene was quoted in a medical journal as saying, quote, The front carriage was an indescribable tangle of twisted metal, and in it the living and the dead were heaped together, intertwined among themselves in the wreckage. It was impossible to estimate the number involved with any degree of accuracy because the lighting was poor, the victims were all tangled together, and everyone was covered in a thick layer of black dust. Oh, God. Many of the victims were writhing in agony and were screaming for individual attention. It was obvious from an early stage that the main problem was the disentanglement of a heap of people, Mm -hmm. many of whom appeared to be in imminent danger of suffocation. Sure. This whole operation was taking place 21 meters or 70 feet underground, Mm -hmm. which obviously complicated matters. Everything had to be brought down. That has its own challenges. Yep. Even though it was February, it got really hot really quickly in the tunnel. Um, Firefighters had to, like, take off their helmets, belts, and jackets just to not, like, be overcome by heat exhaustion. Uh, They also were really overwhelmed by the smell Oh, of things. sure, of course. Um, they they had to limit rescue workers to do like 20 minutes underground and then come up for 40 to like recover just to... And this is in 1975, so that's pretty... That shows you how serious it was that they were even taking that into consideration. They had to work with limited communication because the radios couldn't carry the signal out of the underground. Sure. So they literally had to have runners going back and forth and sometimes that caused confusion because like the game of telephone you know trying to trying to relay messages uh they pulled out any survivors any remains they could however they had to do it one 19 year old police officer who was a passenger named margaret lyles was rescued by both doctors and firefighters the doctors were surgeons who amputated her foot Mm. in order to get her out yeah I mean, you hear similar stories with the something we'll never cover because it was a terrorist attack, Mm -hmm. uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm -hmm. Very similar stories. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm just glad, you know, um, that they know better than to, you know, do a a shelter-in-place drill on the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing in a federal (laughs) building, right? Yeah. Right? They know better than to do that, right? Right? That might be my personal experience. The rescue effort took six days and involved over 1,300 firefighters, 240 police officers, 80 ambulance workers, 16 doctors, and just who knows how many volunteers. All survivors were recovered by 10 p.m. the day of the crash. Yeah, because, yeah. Yeah. In the end, 43 people, including the driver, Leslie Newson, died. And 74 others were treated in in hospital, as they say, for their injuries. Of course, there was a big question. How and why did a train crash into a wall going Mm -hmm. 30 to 40 miles per hour, right? So an inquiry was led by Lieutenant Colonel Ian McNaughton, Chief Inspecting Officer of Railways. There were two crucial pieces of evidence to be examined. The mechanical condition of the train and the medical condition of the driver. Sure. Within about two weeks of the crash, investigators found the train was in full mechanical and electrical working order. There were no mechanical failures Mm -hmm. that happened. So, that left the other side of things, right? The driver. Somehow, despite the driver's cab having, like, almost literally been trash compacted Mm -hmm. into being six inches thick they were able to recover and find out a lot 
about the driver, his remains and what what happened in in situ, you know, like how he was in the cab. Um, in the position they found him in, now this would be really hard. I, I'm sure he got jostled around for lack oh, of a better term in this, yeah. but they found his left hand near but not on the driver's brake. Uh, they were somehow able to complete an autopsy of his body as well. The report of the inquiry was published about a year later, March 4th, 1976. It found that based on x-rays, Newsom's hand was on the dead man's handle at the time of the crash. So I had to look up what is <laughs> what is a dead man's handle, also called a dead man's switch. So in this context of like trains, it is basically a mechanism that has to be manually engaged when operating a train. It's like a, an emergency stop? Is that essentially what this is? Well, sort of, but you have, when it disengages, then it's, that's what signals the emergency. So in other words, like, let's say, and I'm just going to give a, because this isn't exactly how it works, but I'm driving the train. I have to keep pulling this dead man's handle mm-hmm. for the train to operate. Okay. If I let go, the train stops. So the idea being, say you pass out, you let go, Mm -hmm. the train stops. So that would reduce a medical emergency on behalf of the driver endangering anybody, right? The idea is if somebody were to have a heart attack and die while driving, dead man switch, you Mm -hmm. know, they would disengage that switch and the train would stop. Well, they found that he had been holding it the whole time. He never disengaged it. He never let go. Okay. So the idea was it did not appear that he went unconscious, like from having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, that switch would have been disengaged, stopping the train. Um, now, there was also an emergency break in the guards box at the rear of the train. Bob Harris, though, had been up and looking at the advertisements at the back of the train at the time. However, the inquiry did find that even if Bob had been sitting there at the box, he almost certainly couldn't have reacted in time to really okay. engage the emergency brakes. It would have been too late anyway. So they they basically they cleared him of any issues. They're like, yeah, it wasn't great that he got bored and walked away from his post, but it probably wouldn't have helped anything. Yeah. So, um. Now, Bob, for his part, actually said that he had interacted with Newsom several times throughout the morning when they were working together. Um, And he said that Newsom seemed perfectly normal. They, like, chit-chatted a little bit about Bob wanting to go camping. It just all seemed copacetic. He seemed absolutely fine. There were disturbing accounts of several witnesses, including one tube card guard, sorry, who were on platform nine waiting for the train to approach the station at the time of the crash. They, they said that they could see Newson, right? Because he's up front mm-hmm. in the driving car. Um, and they said that they could see him as the train was barreling through that he was staring straight ahead and not moving. Hmm. Um. There were also some tests that indicated that given the lighting and the speed of the train, it's not super likely that anyone would have really been able to observe too much about his face. Yeah. So it could have been a, a matter of, not that people were making things up, more that like you can create memories, you know? Sure. In certain, certain situations, like in, in retrospect. The autopsy of Newson showed no signs of heart attack stroke or any other indicator that he would have been incapacitated for any reason. Um, There was no evidence of drugs or alcohol in his bloodstream and no evidence of liver damage to show that maybe he had a history of, of heavy drinking. There was a little bit of controversy surrounding some findings from his kidneys. So his kidneys appeared to show a blood alcohol level of 0.08. Which is the exact legal limit for driving in England and in a lot of U.S. states, too. Mm -hmm. The toxicologist who found this was like, okay, so there's really no real way to know whether this is due to actual alcohol consumption or whether it's part of the natural decomposition processes of the body. Sure, yeah. 
The coroner, David Paul, said it a little more unequivocally. He said, this is definitely just from decomposition. Mm-hmm. This, there's nothing to indicate that this guy was drinking. Um, he did interact with his colleagues. His wife said he wasn't really much of a drinker. His colleagues said the same, like they had never seen him drink uh, or be under the influence. Um, he had a good reputation. He was known as a conscientious driver, stuck to the rules. So there wasn't... It is what it is, is what it sounds like is a freak accident, or... (coughs) Well, and, and, you know, it it just indicated that there, it wasn't likely that he was being negligent or distracted or something. So with no known physical or health reason for Leslie Newsom to have been suddenly unable to realize that he was about to drive a train into a concrete wall, the inquiry did examine the possibility that he was suicidal. Um, obviously depression and suicidality can look extremely different in different people and can potentially be very well hidden from even those close to someone who is suicidal. There were some indicators that at least sure made it look like Leslie Newson was not planning to end his own life or anyone else's on February 28th. He got up and went to work just completely as normal that morning. He showed up on time. He had his little, you know, satchel with his rule book, his like little personal notebook with all his notes on like how to be a good driver. He bought, he brought his own supply of milk and sugar for his tea. He also carried on him 270 pounds, which was, this is kind of very telling. He had plans after his shift to go buy a car for his daughter. Oh, okay. Um, also, like you're not gonna you're not gonna plan for that. That's the idea, right? Like Bob Harris, everyone else who encountered Leslie at work that morning said he was himself. He was perfectly normal, agreeable, cheerful. Um, a colleague of his asked him if he could have some of his milk and sugar for his own tea, and he was like, "Oh, sure, just take it easy. I want I want more for a cuppa after after my shift." So again, another indicator that he had plans for after a shift. And plus, like, um, one of the first things that is ruled out because I've read this in several different things mm. in workplace related deaths mm-hmm. is suicide mm-hmm. because it's basically the common knowledge is. Well, if you're going to commit suicide, would you go to work that day? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it makes no sense. Right. You know? Yeah. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure it's happened, like, once or twice. But that's usually one of the first things that's ruled, <clears throat> ruled out in a worth, in a workplace death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, really, just all of this seems to, seems to indicate a man with all intentions of just having another normal day at work going about his business afterwards and not someone who is suicidal or homicidal. It points in that direction. It makes it, it makes it highly unlikely. Right. And, And ultimately that was the issue. They couldn't figure out the circumstances of what happened to Leslie. Um, he could have just not been paying attention for five seconds. That's, I mean, that, I mean, it's as simple as that, you know? And that's, you know, they talked about potential other medical conditions or, or neurological or um, mental conditions that could have, like you said, it, it wouldn't have taken long, right? No. So just long enough to distract him or freeze him up mentally yeah. or something to just make make him zone out? Yeah. What if he hadn't gotten happened, sufficient sleep or something? It's all of us. Yes. But fortunately, most of us don't drive a train for yes. a living. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so that, that very well could have been... So in the end, they, they were just like, look, we just don't have enough evidence to say why this happened, but we can say that who was responsible was Leslie Newsom. Sure. You know. Well, because um, ultimately he's driving the train. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. And um, it sounds like he would have been the type of guy that, yeah, it's my responsibility. Right. Yeah. So it, it appears to be an unintentional accident. Sure. Whatever happened, whether is, it was health related or which, not. Which is kind of redundant. Yeah, 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 that's, that's true. I mean, yeah. So when Platform 9 reopened at Moorgate Station, it was with a newly painted concrete wall at the end of the line, like yeah. high vis, like, hey, yeah. look, there's yeah. something here. put this here. wall in gold paint. Well, what so if the guy just, out? like, spaced out and thought he was entering a different station? Or who it, the fuck knows, you know? It sounds so, like that's all, that sound, to me, that's what it sounds out or like. something, maybe, maybe. So I guess the idea was let's make this as visible as possible, like really draw attention to it. 
Um, they also added a heavier mechanical barrier before the sand. Sure, to they slow it down. They lowered the yeah. speed limit of all approaching trains on all platforms to 10 miles per hour, 16 kilometers per hour. Yeah, so if it does hit the wall, it's really not going to do anything. Boop. Well, yeah. I mean, that would have been the idea, too, mm-hmm. with this incident, yeah. except he was not slowing down, which nope. he should have been. So anyway, um, by 1978, a new protection system was implemented in all terminus train stations called a Moorgate Control, after this disaster, mm-hmm. which engages the emergency brake if a train is approaching a platform going more than 20 sure. kilometers it per hour or 12.5 miles per hour. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You don't need the driver to be paying attention. It's going it, to... It's a fail-safe, right? Mm-hmm. So in July 2013, a memorial was unveiled at Finsbury Square, just north of Moorgate Station, that lists the victims of the crash Fortunately, I think fortunately, including Leslie Newson. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. The Moorgate crash remains the deadliest peacetime disaster in the history of the London Underground. Okay. But it doesn't mean that nothing has happened since then. Yeah. And we will discuss that in our third and final installment of the London Underground. Mm. So what's this? Some pictures. Okay. I got some pictures. Yeah, look at the space they had to work with. Mm -hmm. Like, almost nothing. So, yeah, that's horrible. A lot of the pictures, honestly, were just, like, mangled wreckage. Yeah. And, yeah, you can't even really see, like, I mean, yeah, that's a decently lit photo, but I'm sure the visual conditions, just trying to get people out, were just, yeah, it's horrible. And, I mean, they, and they really worked very hard to try and save as many people as they could under very difficult conditions. Yeah. So, so yeah, in the end, it just seems like a, a major uh, tragic accident. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's why we have a show. <laughs> so. <laughs> to cover horrible shit We'd like love this. to be run out of business. <laughs> we can do 10 episodes a week, and it's still that we wouldn't be able to cover everything. Unfortunately, yes. And we still have listeners, and I don't blame anybody at all because I can't remember what we've covered already. We have listeners suggesting topics, and I'm like, wait, did we, 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 did we did that. that. We did that. <laughs> Go look at the back catalog. Mm, 311 episodes? In? This is, is that 311. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not the band. This is the number of the episodes. <laughs> I thought they um, were 311. No, no they're, 311. they're 311. What did they do? Uh, they did a bunch of hit songs, like late 90s, early 2000s. They got a couple good songs. They're, like what? What would um, I recognize? You wouldn't recognize any of them, because that's, <laughs> okay. that's, that, that's not your scene. Okay. <laughs> if one comes on the, if, if one comes on uh, my car stereo, so I'll point it out to Okay. Them. I was like, there's a 311 song. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, stateside, I mean, we've only covered, what, like, one or two, maybe three train crashes or rail train derailments. Oh boy. Not very many, and they happen all we the did time. Like Purdue, mm-hmm. the Purdue Rackham. We did one that, that happened in DC. Um, but yeah, see, I can't, I cannot yeah. recall. <laughs> and be, and because now they make the news more often because of the chemical uh, derailment oh, from a couple. Oh Jesus! We, we come yeah. to we come to learn that a train derailment happens like a thousand times a year, and it's like. <sighs> Really? Yeah. It's like, shouldn't somebody be doing something about it? Like, <laughs> should that still ha- be happening in modern day, with modern day technology? Well, David, we don't want to overreach with big government. That's true. Oh, yeah, don't worry. Our next disaster, the, the next tube disaster is in 1987 Great Britain. So guess who we're getting to next week or next time? Madge. Good old Madge. Mar- Marge Thatcher. Magda Thatcher, <laughs> the uh, Reagan of the UK, exactly. Or if, is or is Reagan? The she Mars was thing. in power first, I was and say. she outlasted him too. Yep. So, um, anyone who has good insult nicknames for Margaret Thatcher, yeah, hit me up. Yeah, I'll put them in the script. Yes, and also if anybody, because I didn't see anything on the discussion group this week, so that means none of you listened to last week's episode. If you, if you want to see us cut, <laughs> if you want. Oh, no. Somebody did. Somebody did. Like what? I think Jennifer did on on Twit, uh, not Twitch, Twitter. Twitter. That one. So if anybody is interested in in watching us cover, uh, she said when and where. Yeah, yeah. she was asking. Well, that's one person. More than more than one person. (laughs) Or is that our answer? (laughs) That might be. Who knows? 
But uh, if anybody is interested, well, you know what, we'll just do it anyway and we'll invite people. Anyway, and yes. Want to watch it? Yeah. But yes, at some watch point, this space. it's not going to happen. Well, it might happen in the next week. Who knows? It depends on. We have to when record like three episodes. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to be gone. For and we're going to be gone to New York for a week, ten days. We're getting ready for summer vacation. Yes. Not so. from the pod. Don't worry. No. We'll we, shore up. We, we will have it covered. Yes. To keep all of you uh, lovely listeners entertained. There we go. While we are away. But, uh, so, that was part two of the London Underground, the Morgate Tube Crash. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.